I'm really honestly trying to explore the benefits and the yeah. risks of this and hear from people's experiences without getting into like 80s satanic panic stuff. But it, I am really concerned about the backside as people get in deeper to these experiences, the darkness that they encounter. So yeah. was that the case for you? It was like initially good and now you're being drawn into darker, increasingly chaotic, anxious feelings. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And I, I get kind of self-conscious about talking about this too, because I was not raised in with like a deep understanding or any understanding at all of the supernatural. And, but I mean, absolutely. I think there were demonic things going on. I well, many of you know that uh, over the last few years, I've developed a bit of curiosity around the subject of psychedelics, especially as there seems to be this psychedelic resurgence happening in our culture. I'm interested in how people looking for transcendence and seeking transcendence, trying to escape the, the limitations of the imminent frame are re-exploring psychedelics as a means to do that, as a means to taste and touch transcendence. And uh, probably a month or two ago, I stumbled across this article in Ecstasis Magazine. Um, shout out to Connor and all the wonderful people at that, that, that great publication. An article written by our guest today, Ashley Landy, and she had an article entitled These Luminous Counterfeits sharing a bit about her experiences with psychedelics and her journey. And I just, I'm so excited to have Ashley on today. Ashley, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited too. Well, first of all, I'd, I'd be curious, you know, for, and I'm going to link the um, article. It's just such a well-written article. I know you're, you've got a book that you're working on right, right now as well. I was just, as a side note, so thoroughly impressed with your writing skills. I mean, it was just so beautifully written. Thank you. And you caught me right thank away you. in your introductory paragraph with a statement that said something along the lines of, I became Bob Dylan or I was Bob Dylan and talking about this trip that you had. So I'm curious just to help people who haven't read that article get to know you a little bit. I'd love to talk a little bit about your background and your religious upbringing and how psychedelics became appealing to you at all. Yeah, sure. So I was raised in what I would call kind of a marginally Christian household. Uh, we went to a Methodist church and all those um, Christian subcultural touchstones that other people have, you know, shows and music they listen to. I, I had no familiarity with any of that. Um, we were very secular, I guess, in, as far as our cultural media consumption went. And my parents both got stronger in their faith as they got older. But when I was a child, it just wasn't it wasn't a huge part of who we were as a family. We went to church maybe uh, twice a month, and that kind of tapered off as I got older. I do remember going to Sunday school and VBS. Uh, I went to youth group once, um, but um, it just wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a huge part of our childhood. My father was extremely politically conservative, and so the Methodist church was too liberal for him, And but, uh, you know, no other church was suitable either, I guess. So, uh, so, yeah, it just wasn't a huge part of my childhood. It wasn't an integral part of my childhood, and I had some vague, not, I don't know if I'd even call it a vague understanding of who Jesus was. I 
you know, when we first, when my husband and I became Christians, I was like, I know Paul is a person in the Bible, but I don't, I don't know who he is or what he did, uh, just things like that. So I had very minimal, I guess, biblical knowledge. Uh, we would pray maybe before Thanksgiving dinner, Christmas dinner, but otherwise definitely not, not acquainted, not well acquainted with Christianity and certainly not uh, Christian subculture. So when I became a teenager and a typical teenage rebellion, and it was just very easy for me to disavow all of that and tell my parents I was an atheist, which was such a verboten word, and uh, they were very upset, for sure. Um, but I just, I don't think I had ever really fully understood or believed um, in Christianity or the gospel, and so like I said, it wasn't it wasn't a painful thing for me to disavow that. It felt actually kind of thrilling, and uh, when I was a teenager, I, I've always loved to read, and so I started getting into various counter-cultural writers. Um, I remember reading Sartre and Catch-22 was one of my favorite books, The Beat Poets, um, things like that. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed like, um, and there was a boy I had a crush on who was an atheist, <laughs> so that was influential. <laughs> and it just seemed to me that any anyone of intellectual stature was not a believer, was was at the very least an agnostic, if not an atheist. And I wanted to be a person of intellectual stature. So so I believe that was the way to go. Um, and toward the end of high school and in college, got into drinking, partying, uh, marijuana here and there. But nothing psychedelic until the end, I think my senior year in college, one of my friends said, hey, I've got these mushrooms. And I was totally game. I said I didn't really know very much about psychedelics, but I just thought it would be fun. It would be an adventure. And so we uh, took them, my roommate, my best friend, who was my roommate, and our friend, and then my best friend's boyfriend, we took these mushrooms. And I remember I did feel obligated to, I had this gypsy dress that had bells on it. <laughs> like I felt obligated to kind of play the part superficially. Like I said, even though I didn't really know anything about psychedelic culture, and I just had a great time. I just thought it was fabulous. It was fun. It was interesting. There was no dark element to that particular trip. It was just entertaining and hilarious, and I had a great time. And, and I this thought, was more like about wow, a party experience for you then, right? You, this, you weren't necessarily in a place where you're like, yeah. I'm searching for some sort of spiritual experience. It was just offered to you at a party. And then you were like, "Hey, let's let's try something out. This sounds fun." Right? Yeah. And I wasn't I wasn't at right. I wasn't at a party where people were drinking. And my friend did have some experience. So he said, "Hey, like, don't drink coffee today. You know, you shouldn't drink caffeine the day that we're there. You know." So he had some sense of preparatory measures. But but yeah, to me, it was just it was just fun. It was just interesting. I I wasn't looking anything for anything spiritual. And I didn't find anything spiritual. So um, mushrooms were kind of difficult to come by, though. They were just either they were around or they weren't. And I think there were a couple more times over the course of maybe a handful of times over the course of the next year that I, I was able to get a hold of them. And they're, you know, they again, just had a great time. It wasn't spiritual. It wasn't. But it was just entertaining. And I can't remember... 
I think the Bob Dylan time. That okay, so you're gonna talk about that before. a little bit for those yeah. that haven't read the article yet, because that's I, I I love it. I mean, I shouldn't love it. It's wild. I'm I'm a Minnesotan. You know, Bob Dylan grew up like, you know, here in Minnesota. Right. Yeah. yeah he hasn't. Uh-huh. He's never really quite uh, associated with it in the same way like Prince did. But we still claim Bob Dylan as our own here. Oh yes, right. Prince. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I I really liked Bob Dylan prior to that trip, but yeah, that trip on mushrooms, I was utterly convinced that I had merged with the person of Bob Dylan in some kind of really mysterious but foundational way, and uh, I just remember like rolling on the floor, and I was listening to, I think I was listening to Bring It All Back Home Again, which is still probably my favorite Bob Dylan record, and I I just felt like... I mean, I was having this intensely transpersonal, I guess you would call it, experience where I felt like I was merging with Bob Dylan and it felt like the lyrics to his music were narrating every, every like every detail of what was occurring. Mm-hmm. And um, that time too, I felt like there were, you know, people will say, I had a friend who was really into the idea of the Akashic record and you tap into the Akashic record when you're on psychedelics and... And that that time, I felt like there was time travel. I felt like my explain, friend Derek you explain was there, that a little bit more, Ashley, for people that, that aren't familiar with that term, the Akashic Record. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, so I'm really not the best. That was something, an aspect of of New Age culture that I was never super into. Like I said, I had a friend who was who was super into it. That this, I I think supposedly this idea of there's like a collective consciousness. historical consciousness like embedded in our genetics that we can access through psychedelics through meditation through Mm -hmm. astral projection or whatever and so that time I would say you know I would have said back then I experienced time travel I uh that trip in particular I remember saying to my friend the only thing we haven't experienced yet is death I don't know what that was about, but like I said, over the course of writing, I've been thinking deeply about all this stuff and it's been really interesting, the memories that, that have come back up and yeah. So what changed like between those initial experiences where, where maybe it was, it sounds like your initial trips weren't substantially different than maybe when you're high on marijuana or something like that. Was there a dosage difference? Just even to kind of help people understand who have no familiarity with this stuff, like what changes these trips, you know, to go from maybe just kind of like a general euphoria or seeing something akin to a dream to something like really profound, like you feel like your consciousness is merging with another person you've never met before. And of course, these other experiences we'll get into where people feel like a oneness with God, contact with other entities. Was there a dosage difference that you can recall between the Bob Dylan trip and, you know, other party experiences? Uh, Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, so the standard breakthrough dose of psilocybin would be three grams of mushrooms. And I don't, I don't know how they, I mean, I think there are more exacting measurements that go on, like in the Johns Hopkins and these therapeutic trials, but that's kind of the standard dose. Like if you want to actually trip and not just kind of have an interesting day or not just have like an edge on things. 
So um, at that dosage, definitely way different than being really high on marijuana. Um, so yeah, and Terrence McKenna, I don't know if you're familiar with that yeah. name. He was kind of like a hero within, he is deceased now, but a hero and remains a hero in the psychedelic culture. And he called four grams of mushrooms a heroic, heroic dose. dose. Yeah. And so... Um, yeah, so there were times, I mean, when I grew my own, it was awfully strong. I don't know that I ever, you know, passed the threshold of the heroic dose. I don't know. I mean, it's kind of an arbitrary term, you know, but, um, yeah, I would say dosage certainly makes a huge difference as to whether you are still somewhat present in actual reality versus being just totally out in the stratosphere and not even necessarily aware or cognizant of what's going on around you. Yeah, what about setting? You know, pe people talk about set and setting. How did that change the experiences of the trips that you had, particularly with, with psilocybin? Yeah, I, I guess I was pretty lucky in those early days that I... I didn't have bad experiences considering, I don't know, I think set and setting are kind of overrated as terms because, yes, there's an influence, but, I mean, a trip can really, it, like, it can turn on a dime. And um, you're very malleable, very vulnerable to external influence and even to your own thoughts during a psychedelic experience. So, um, yeah, I feel like set and setting are just a little... I mean, Cliché. yeah, there are things like my, my, yeah. And also just like a little overrated as far as like them being able to ensure a good experience. I just don't think that's really possible. And uh, granted, there are things, like I said, like my, my husband, um, when he was a teenager, he was really into guzzling cough medicine and which can have something of a hallucinatory effect if you take enough of it, which he did. And his parents did an intervention, his dad and a friend, a family friend of theirs. And, and so my husband said it wasn't very effective because it just turned into, into this like exchanging war stories between them. And he, anyway, but I, we just always laugh. He told me that the family friend said that she would take acid and go to kiss concerts. And I was like, okay, to me, that seems like a sure ticket to a bad trip. I, <laughs> yeah, that right. seems like a bad idea. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that so. seems bad enough without acid. I'm not a KISS fan, so. Right? Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So, yeah. Right. Tell me a little bit about how maybe your trips, well, first of all, did you get into more than just psilocybin? What about, you know, DMT is another popular one, especially for people that are seeking transcendent experiences. Do you have any experience with that? I think you mentioned LSD. What were some of the others outside of outside of mushrooms that you had some experience with? Yeah, so LSD was my very favorite. Like LSD was the one that I did the most over the course of the next almost decade. It was, I mean, partly it was that it was available and also I just loved it. I felt like it um, precipitated this death rebirth um experience that I really liked, I guess you call it. It could be extremely brutal, but um, in the beginning anyway, I really liked it. DMT was one that I never did. I had friends that were super into it, and um, but I just never, 
I don't know if I was a little hesitant about it. I always really wanted to do an ayahuasca circle, and by the time I finally got invited to one, I was already (laughs) done with psychedelics. So salvia is one that I did only once, and that one is pretty intense. I feel fortunate in that I did not have a horrifying experience, which I guess many people do on salvia. Uh, That's a weird one, though, that you really, I guess, somewhat akin to DMT. I've heard this is a quality of DMT where you are like not present in the room at all. Like you are in a completely different realm. And I definitely experienced that. Sylvia is a very short lived drug. It's similar. It's even shorter than DMT, I think. But um, yeah, it was weird, but it was, it was fortunately not horrifying. Uh, but LSD was definitely my, my psychedelic of choice. Yes, I would say. So, what point, you know, you've shared a little bit about an experience where you felt some sort of like cosmic union with Bob Dylan, which is a fun, you know, it's probably a really fun party story. But part of your story is also like a sense in which you were perhaps getting um, an awareness of God, or at least uh, what seemed to be God to you at time at a time or at least a power that transcends yourself talk about maybe some of those trips and what those experiences were like where now we're moving into like something really deeply profound um moving into like the religious domain yeah and i feel like maybe that's why i was so attracted to lsc because it was the first psychedelic that broke that wall for me and I was still an atheist or I said I was still an atheist by the time I took LSC I had um I'm actually writing a separate essay for another collection right now that's um the collection is centered around stories of people um for whom their journey to faith involved contact with one of the new atheists and um I was really I really liked Christopher Hitchens which, um, going back and reading one of his books and research for this essay is very, like, painful. He was very, um, cutting to the point, I would say, of being cruel and nasty. And, but, um, I, I remember I bought his book that I think it was in 2007, God is Not Great. And I thought that that was going to be, like, my answer and I, I didn't recognize at the time I feel like I did have this increasing desperation to know for sure whether there was a, there was a god or not but I at the same time I thought well atheism is a foregone conclusion so I'm just going to find a way to kind of like cement my atheistic beliefs and I remember reading like half of that book and just becoming really disillusioned with his tone and also thinking if this is truth like, why is it so ugly and why is it so empty and hollow and makes me feel gross? You know, and I, it was interesting because I had never before like thought of or like yearned consciously anyway, yearned for the the coincidence of truth and beauty. You know, I never thought before like the truth should be beautiful or that should be a quality of the truth. But something about reading that book, it just like, it's like, I can't do this, but I still couldn't countenance the idea of having any kind of religious faith. And it was not long after that that I had an acquaintance who said he had some LSD. And I thought, okay, sure, you know, why not? I 
barely knew this person, but I thought I was just feeling reckless. And I thought, well, I've done mushrooms before. How different can it be? And he, he's told me, oh, I don't, you know, it's a, it's a little different. I was like, it's fine. And <laughs> so I had a really, what I would call a really shattering experience and on LSD and very disorienting, very subversive. I just felt like my entire reality was shattered and my sense of who I was and I I didn't know like I really couldn't decide if what had happened was good or bad it was just so profoundly disorienting and so after that I kind of you know and I remember saying oh I might do that again like maybe once a year or something and then it was like two weeks later (laughs) that I did it again and yeah and I think that second time was a time I felt I had what I felt at the time was a transcendent experience of God. And I remember tearfully calling my father and telling him I believe in God now. And I think he was kind of confused, but he was, I didn't tell him, you know, I was doing drugs, but, um, you know, it's, it's hard looking back now. I, I did feel like I had this these these transcendent experiences, these mountaintop experiences, like a feeling of the vastness of everything and a, f- a feeling of eternity, like a feeling of agelessness, yeah. which, you know, and the rare... And one thing that surprised me, like delving back into all this, and, you know, I've been raising kids and, like, just living life, and, and for a long time I hadn't... Well, for a long time I didn't want to think about psychedelics. I was so damaged by everything that had happened that I, seriously, for several years, I was like, I can't even think about it. I had this paranoia about somehow getting dosed, which, I mean, there's no way that would happen, but I just had... That was how damaged I was by all of it. Um, but going back and thinking about it, it's been really interesting because one thing I felt that I hadn't expected to feel was some temptation, you know, thinking like, well, maybe I could try it again, you know, maybe it would, uh, but no, I'll never take psychedelics again. But, um, if there, I guess if I could say, if there's one thing that tempts me, it was that, that feeling of eternity, that feeling of agelessness. But, Mm -hmm. but I'll say too, that my experiences of those experiences, like they weren't deeply relational. And I feel like even in on the mountaintop of psychedelics, there was always a danger of falling. There was always like a, and I think too, once, once you know how bad a bad trip can get, which it's, it can be completely horrific. I mean, I think there were a couple trips I had that I probably had some PTSD afterward. They can be, they can be that bad. In what ways? And like, um, when you say they're that bad that they could give you PTSD and yeah. I don't, I don't want to like drum up those those painful memories per se, yeah, but no, it's, okay. those that it's have been long no, enough. I have enough distance. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of people that have no frame of reference for this stuff. And so they might consider like a bad trip that the best thing that they might be able to compare it to is like a nightmare, a bad dream. How is it maybe similar to that? How, how is it maybe more profound than that? Yeah, I, how can I describe it? I mean, I'm better in writing when I'm, you know, describing these things. It, it 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 feels like there. Well, I remember one in particular. It feels like there is no safety anywhere in the universe. It feels like a like an utter isolation from everything. It feels like you're cut off 
from anything good, certainly from the existence of God, who is, you know, in whom everything good is contained. And so it, it's, it's a horrifying, I mean, I, I guess I'd liken it for, for someone who has experienced a panic attack, which I have many times in sober life. Um, it's like that multiplied infinitely. I mean, I can't, I can't even like the intensity of those feelings. It's one of those things like it's, it's really so sadly experiential because it's one of those things like I can't really convey the, the horror of it, you know, just like, it's hard to convey. I remember before I gave birth for the first time, you know, I read books and I, listen to stories and but there's really no way to convey the intensity of something it's just like there's there's no way to convey to fully convey I guess to someone the intensity of of the experience of the presence of God you know and we can talk about it and read about it but but it is so yeah experiential I think that's for me why I've I've felt a degree of interest in this subject is because I can I have a long history in charismatic and Pentecostal contexts, where it was very, very common to be in and around people that had these, like what they would claim were really profound mystical experiences. We're talking about transcendent visions. And, you know, for a while I was traveling around the country doing these, like people called them prophetic conferences with essentially like your big name speakers on these circuits are always people that had these, you know, these claims to visions and experiences. And I don't want to get into like value judgments on whether they were all valid or not. But the thing that I found so interesting was I would hear these, these stories from some of these people. And then I would hear stories from people that had done, you know, psilocybin or DMT or LSD. And I'm like, Boy, there's there's a there's a degree of similarity in that it seems like this is beyond just on the edge of what language can touch and describe these experiences. And I can see that there is overlap here. I can see that something similar is happening. Um I I still confess like a degree I'm primarily suspicious, though I'm very much open to like therapeutic benefit of these things. My disposition has been suspicion because I look back and go, well, it's not like, like psychedelics are new. Um, you know, so why don't we have a a record of great mystic Christian mystics from the past, you know, extolling their virtues. So that's why I've encountered it with some, some suspicion. The other thing I've been suspicious of Ashley, and it seems like this is like part of your story. I've got a friend, Paul Reese. Paul Reese just, um, he's been on the podcast before and he just released a book in the last month called The Psychedelic Christian, retelling his story and experience with psychedelics and then coming out of it oh. and finding, okay. uh, I should connect you two together. But anyways, for Paul, yeah. part of his journey, and I've heard this from people and I just find it interesting. And I, it sounds like it's part of your story too. So maybe you can correct me. For Paul, he definitely had, especially with psilocybin, this profound awakening to like the existence of powers beyond him and an awakening to transcendent powers that was profound. You know, he had grown up in a Christian home, 
much more, you know, a fundamentalist and and committed to weekly church attendance. And I think he had obviously grown disillusioned with that. But these experiences, no one could talk him out of. And that that seems to be a, a reoccurring thread, even in the stuff that I've seen from John Johns Hopkins University with um, specifically with DMT that, you know, people come out of these experiences very much not secular, <laughs> you know, anymore. Yeah. And yet, so this was Paul's experience, and it sounds like it was yours, that there seems to be like an initial, for many people, an initial really positive trip, although a lot of people have really bad trips to begin with too, but there's a lot of people that seem to have these really profound experiences where they feel like a oneness with the universe, a oneness with God. It's it's beyond what language can describe. And then the deeper they get for Paul, for Paul, for my friend Paul Reese, what he experienced was the deeper that he got, the more he started to have reoccurring contact with what he and you hear other people describe as like entities, um, to the point mm-hmm. where there were two beings. Um, and you can read about this in Paul's book. There were like two beings, I believe it was two that was coming and he was getting into, you know, um, lucid dreaming and all this other stuff as well. And these beings were beginning to torment him in a way that he would now associate with like demonic influence, demonic, dare he even go as far as to say possession. It sounds like what you're describing is perhaps an initial state of really, really positive experiences. And I got the sense from your article and what you're sharing that you know, beyond that initial veil of acceptance and being welcomed in and by whatever this is, you know, beyond the veil that there's, there's also like this looming darkness there. And was that your experience too? The deeper you got, the more, I'm just, I'm really wanting to have honest conversation about this. I have to be careful because I don't want to slip into like just Christian apologetics guy here and be like, this is why this (laughs) stuff, I'm really honestly trying to explore the benefits and the risks of this and hear from people's experiences without getting into like 80s satanic panic stuff. But I am really concerned about the backside as people get in deeper to these experiences, the darkness that they encounter. So was that the case for you? It was like initially good and now you're being drawn into darker, increasingly chaotic, anxious feelings. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And I, I get kind of self-conscious about talking about this too, because I was not raised in with like a deep understanding or any understanding at all of the supernatural. And, but I mean, absolutely. I think there were demonic things going on. I mean, I, um, and yeah, at first there were these ecstatic experiences and that those ecstatic experiences were so, they did feel really powerful and they did feel really profound. And it it drew me in and it made me crave more. And I remember there was this, there was also this like, almost felt like it was an external compulsion as I went deeper and deeper, like go farther, go deeper, go, go, go. And there's this book I really love. I really loved it back then, which rereading it now, I kind of mystified that I liked it so much back then called Be Not Content by William J. And I think I might have talked about that in the Ecstasis article. And he... He was alive back in the 60s and and just like right on the beginning of the cusp of, of the psychedelic revolution, you know, lived in California, I think San Jose maybe, 
and um, he just he writes about the exact same phenomenon, like the trajectory. And you know, sadly, I th- <laughs> he didn't become a Christian at the end, but that trajectory of like so high, and you see that too historically. And, and like you said, I think you're absolutely right to be suspicious, and I'm extremely suspicious because I'm like, we've we've done this before. Right. I mean, historically, this and people say, oh, it's different now. It's and I'm like, well. I don't necessarily see that it is. And I mean, granted, I wasn't alive for the 60s, but I always, um, once I was into psychedelics, I always identified much more with 60s culture. I liked 60s music. I That was just what I felt identified with as opposed to club and rave culture and like EDM and, you know, Burning yeah. Man type stuff. I just always felt more identified with 60s culture. So, so I feel like I have a degree of familiarity with the cultural artifacts, you know, and, and writing of the time and... And that trajectory, especially reading Be Not Content, like it's, he, he writes, he wrote it when he was like 21 and I think he was, I think he was on speed, you know, it was like a Kerouac thing where he just like vomited it out. But it's, it's surprisingly good considering that. And like I said, the trajectory from this feeling of being on the mountaintop and there's so much potential, you know, and this is going to change the world and the, to like slowly going down into like super dark, the end of the book is like, a trip he had that's that's very difficult to read because the graphic darkness and like gruesomeness of it is just is is so upsetting. But and I definitely had trips like that where I that I I don't enjoy thinking about and I you know all of my friends eventually had trips like that that um, were just so disturbing and unsettling and and I would say to some degree PTSD inducing, which I think speaks to the power of psychedelics that and like I said I don't I don't mean to cheapen but in saying that I don't I don't want to cheapen the experience of people who have actually experienced things like soldiers and you know actually experienced things in real life that leave them with PTSD but but I think it does speak to the the power of psychedelics and that also really scares me as I see a lot of like and I myself had a lot of hubris as far as, like, I can handle this, I know what I'm doing, you know, and I see that in the psychedelic world, and I just think, like, there are there are demonic powers at work that are beyond our control. And also, there's a an older gentleman um, named James Stewart Bell, and he had a testimony. When I was first coming out of psychedelic usage and, you know, kind of dipping my toe into Christianity and Jesus... Uh, I read he had a testimony in Christianity Today, and it was one of those testimonies that they put at the very end of every issue, and I didn't realize how much they heavily edited those and and kind of made them, like, more, I don't know, accessible to a broader audience, I guess, because it was very, it it was, his was very simplistically written, and he talked about, uh, he was really into psychedelics, he saw a vision of Christ on the cross one time when he was on peyote, and then he said he also had a, an experience with Ram Das, who, of course, formerly known as Richard Albert, alongside Timothy Leary, he got kicked out of Harvard. Um, but he said he had an experience, like he was becoming increasingly, and he was kind of on that downhill trajectory with psychedelics. And he had an experience, he went to see Ram Das speak, and Ram Das singled him out and said, like, you, you were the most enlightened person in this room, like, you understand what I'm talking about. And James Bell was like, I was so lost. Like, I had, 
I was completely adrift. Like I was, he was so wrong. And so he said that was, but anyway, all that to say, he's, he's just an like astonishingly good writer and communicator. And I'm like, it's kind of a shame that they watered down his writing so much. But anyway, he said to me um, that he believes psychedelics take us places that we were never meant to go. And I thought that was really, I think about that a lot. And, and I feel, I feel like there's something analogous to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like, I just feel like there's something there and I, I don't know all the ramifications of that. And I, but I, I just feel like, I just feel like they're spiritually and psychologically dangerous. And by the time you're ensnared, like, I remember I, I could, like, I had not, by the time I finally said farewell to LSD, I had not had a good trip in probably a couple of years. But I remember, and I vividly remember this, I was sitting on our front porch in Kansas City, and I just felt like God said to me, it's time to stop. And I mean, the time to stop was a long time ago. You know, there was a time to never try, but that was too late for that. But I remember just weeping because I, it was like, I, I, and I felt like I needed to argue with God, like, no, LSD is my friend. Mm. And, but like, what an abusive friend, you know? It was brutal, and as far as um, entities go, I definitely have, and like I said, writing this book has just been fascinating, because I've gone back and read, I was writing a novel at the time that I was heavily taking LSD, a lot of times just by myself, sometimes I would take it with a friend, but a lot of times just by myself, and things get really bizarre <laughs> really quickly um, with with anyone taking psychedelics, but particularly when you, I think when you're taking them by yourself, and... I I had this... Well, I was really obsessed with the movie All That Jazz. I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's not a movie that I would recommend without qualifications because of the content, but it's by Bob Fosse, and it's like this semi-autobiographical account of, of Bob Fosse. And I remember feeling like I... There, there again, another, like, like somehow I was the character in yeah, this movie, yeah. and it was, like, a really profound... And I, I became increasingly, like, re- actual reality was increasingly alien to me. And I remember I'd be disappointed every time I come down, like, oh, I still have to deal with reality. And I was also really into Philip K. Dick at the time, and I remember he said, reality is that which, after you stop believing in it, does not go away. And it was just so wow. crushing to me. But I did feel like there were forces outside me that were drawing me deeper and deeper into this realm. And there was one night in particular, and I've never had this experience, like an experience of seeing a visual manifestation of, of a spirit, or this is the only time it's ever happened to me. I was not on acid. I actually hadn't taken acid in a few days, and it was the middle of the night, and I woke up. I was alone in my apartment, and there was a like this column of black smoke in the corner of my room. And I said to myself, that's not real. I'm going back to sleep. And then my little, and I lived on the second floor of an apartment, so there weren't people passing by on a sidewalk. My little, I had this little dog named Gene Hackman. <laughs> and all of a sudden he bristled, yeah, I know. All of a sudden he bristled and stood up and he started barking like so intensely. Like, I mean, his, his attention was completely concentrated on that corner. And that really freaked me out. And I just put my covers over my head and I tried to calm him down, but he like could not be dissuaded. And um, that really, that that shook me. But even after then, I still was like, 
the LSC is not my problem, you know, other things are my problem. <laughs> like, uh, And it wasn't long after that that I was actually hosp- hospitalized um, for psychiatric reasons for like a week. Mm. And, um, but yeah, so that, that 100% absolutely was my experience. And, and like I said, and I didn't know if, I don't know if you want to talk more about um, the therapeutic potential, because I know I had listened to a couple of your podcasts and, and heard you talk about that. Um, yeah, but, I'd love to talk yeah, about sorry, that. Yeah, I'd love now. to talk about that, and I want to talk about your your journey out of it. But I, I want to hang for a moment and just float a theory by you. I, you know, I don't know how much, uh-huh. like, as you kind of reflect back on your experiences, if you've if you've tried to get into any of like the scientific literature behind what was going on in me or anything like that. But I've been really trying to work through this puzzle for a couple of years, you know, reading some of the scientific literature on it, cognitive science on it, trying to make that like, how does this parse out with what might be like historic Christian theology or maybe even historic Christian Mm -hmm. cosmology? Like, how is the universe structured? And so here's like my working theory right now. But what I think is going on and you tell me, like, just based on your experience, you can say that sounds that's stupid, Paul. Or you can tell me, you know, whatever, whatever you want. But here's kind of like the way I've been processing this so far. And um, so I, I think like bedrock to our experience of consciousness, all of our individual experience of consciousness is grounded in what we could say is like, and this is still simply by analogy, God's consciousness, right? So God is the, the fundamental, primordial, ultimate reality, right? Um, he is necessary and we are contingent. So anything that we experience is um, we have no experience at all outside of God holding all of it together. And I think this is historic Christian theology mm-hmm. and specifically it's in Christ, by yeah. him, through him, in him, for him. So here's my working theory, right? Is like most of the time our conscious energies are bound up in self-preservation. Like we know this, this is kind of like the evolutionary drives that keep us alive. We're trying, trying to stay alive. We're generally like trying to reproduce and fit into a social group. And so much of our conscious energy throughout the day is devoted to that, that I think it kind of like siphons out and filters out things that actually are happening in reality on maybe a spectrum that we just weren't wired to be consciously aware of all the time. And there is stuff that happens in our brain when we, let's say, like sing and worship together. There's altered states of consciousness. So I know that can like wig out some Christians, but they're just prayer, um, you know, meditation, uh, worship, you know, all these mystical experiences have to be embodied through our minds and bodies. Like we have no knowledge, experience of the presence of God without it, something happening in our bodies because we're embodied people. So I've been interested in like how we can actually see, especially with in psychedelics, like new neural pathways in our brain are start speaking that don't normally speak to each other. You can see this in fMRI scans of people on psychedelics like um, like psilocybin is like yeah. you got these neural networks in your brain that don't normally speak. My working theory right now is like there are different ways in which our state of consciousness can be altered from this sort of like 
I'm trying to survive. I'm focused on myself and my selfish concerns to going, well, there's a world beyond myself. And to varying degrees, like those blinders can be opened up really, really wide, just a little bit wider, really, really wide to like, we are now encountering yeah. things that are probably happening all the time, but we just couldn't live in the world. And so when you talk about in your article and you've kind of hinted at a lot of people that have profound psychedelic experiences talk about something like ego death, right? It's that sense in which yeah. my selfish concerns are not the only thing that matters in this world. In fact, my selfish concerns limit. And that's really weird because right. it's similar in a lot of ways to what we say is like a Christian conversion experience where we go, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, that Christ that lives within me. And I'm given myself now to carry my yeah. cross you know, to be a living sacrifice, there is a sense in which like a death of selfish, self-centeredness is part of the Christian story and part of Christian transformation. So I'm really curious. I th My working theory is like, I think there are things about these compounds that put us into these states which so radically alter our state of consciousness. And that in and of itself isn't bad like altered states of consciousness are not bad to move beyond this. Like I'm trying to survive. I'm worried about my place in the social status ladder. I'm, you know, those basic concerns yeah. that in and of itself isn't wrong. I think the thing I'm most curious or have questions about is I don't know if we were ever like to just simply go, we're going from this to let's blow the doors off. I don't know mm. if we were made for that quick, like it's a rocket ship ride into that stratosphere. And I think my working theory right yeah. now, and I, I, I really want your honest feedback on that. I know I'm putting you on the spot with this. <laughs> um, my working theory right now is like, I think that it's really only in Christ and through Christ and by the empowerment of the spirit that we are equipped at all to engage with those layers of reality, with powers that are beyond us. Because otherwise, like in the, in the hierarchy, like we're below the angels, you know, we're below these yeah. principalities and powers. And it's like, you want to just run right into that room? I was really fascinated. There's this like online, this is website called like DMT Journal. And it's just people sharing their journal entries of DMT trips. And I remember reading one about a person who had a trip. They started to encounter these entities. And the first thing that these entities told them was, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And that always struck mm, me yeah, as... Yeah, I've heard that one. I'm really curious as to whether or not that in the Christian story and in following Jesus, we are equipped with certain practices that alter our state of consciousness rightly and do it with the spirit in a way that brings us into communion with God and gives us victory over these forces. But when we like short circuit that, we are opening ourselves up. There could be a lot of good that happens, and there definitely is for some people, and we are also opening ourselves up to a world 
that in and of ourselves, like we are just not equipped to handle. So that's a lot. That's my working theory right now. Yeah. What What do you think about that? Like, what's your what's your gut reaction? Yeah, my gut reaction is that I completely agree, and that's extremely well articulated and really deep. And I'm probably not equipped to, you know, like I'm not on the same level like theologically with you, but as far as being able to articulate and like having the knowledge, but um. Yeah, 100%. And there again, I, I think back to my my acquaintance, James Bell, saying, like, they take us places that we were not meant to go. And it is, like, it's a catastrophic... It's And there was another... When I was... Actually, when I was preparing for... Um, I was on Unbelievable with Justin Brierley yeah. talking about this topic. And when I was preparing for that, I, I talked to so many... Just from a number of sources, I... Um, Facebook and you know just I contacted different people and um, talked over the phone to maybe like 10 different mostly from the 60s generation who were now Christians Um, but I do have a couple friends um, who would be more our contemporaries in age uh, who were deep into psychedelics and now are Christian and um where is I going? I completely lost my train of thought. I am pregnant, so I, I'm sorry. The baby is demanding your process. I know, I know. Um, yes, but um, how that? I guess I just brought that up to say, like that. That was a. I feel like that was a. That was a prevailing theme, and I remember. Oh, there was one man in particular who said um, he. Yeah, like he encountered entities, and he kept. He kept asking, he would ask them questions. Like he was, he would take heavy doses of LSE. You would encounter these entities. And interestingly, they would, they would be the same ones every time. Like he was able to access the same ones, which to me suggests that this is a reality. I have another anecdote about that too, personal anecdote about that. But, and he would, he would ask them questions and it was like, and, and once he, he said at that time he was, approached by a Christian missionary, a young girl, and he's, he just completely upbraided her. He was like, you know, get out of here, you're ridiculous. And, and um, but, you know, he started wondering, like, because he, he felt, began to feel increasingly lost, you know, increasingly not getting that same transcendent high from the trips. And he said, he started asking these entities about Jesus, and they got really agitated. And really, and I just find that fascinating. And I, I, I had actually on Salvia, the time I took Salvia, I remember, and it sounds so absurd, but uh, toward the end of the trip, I was, when I was starting to come down a little, I was on like this water wheel and I kept going below ground and then I would come back up and my husband was sitting there on the couch next to me and then I would go down and come, and there, when I would go down, there was this ravioli. It was a, either a ravioli or a postage stamp, which like I said, completely absurd. <laughs> it was animated, it had other. like Mickey Mouse hands. <laughs> And, yeah, I know, I know, <laughs> I know, right? And it kept saying, like, in this high-pitched Mickey Mouse voice, it said, like, come on, hurry, we got to go. And I was like, I can't, you know, because I kept coming back up, and I would go back down, and I would try to follow him, but I can't. And then eventually I came down, and I was back in the room. And But I remember, too, I was reading, I think before the Unbelievable podcast, I was reading through, you might have heard of Arrowhead. It's the same kind of thing, like a, a trip report site, um, that's part of it anyway. And uh, it's a drug drug website. And, you know, thousands upon thousands of these trip reports. And I went to read some about Salvia because I read, I think, Matthew Johnson, who's one of the head researchers at Johns Hopkins, which I have 
some things to say about him and the things he says on podcasts that are very concerning to me. But he he said, like, Salvia is one that a lot of people, they do it once and then they're done and they never do it again because it's very, it's that scary. And I was like, huh, that wasn't my experience. I would have done it again. I just, I don't know, it was never really around after that. But I, so I went and read some Salvia trip reports and a lot of people do have really dark experiences on it. But one of the one of the trip reports I read, a gentleman was talking about, or whoever wrote the report, was talking about um, there was like an orphan, like this Dickensian orphan in rags who was, who was beckoning him saying, come on, hurry up, we got to go. And I just like, it, I mean, it gave me goosebumps. I was like, that is bizarre. That is bizarre. That is, that is not coincidental. Mm. <laughs> like that is bizarre. And so... I think absolutely, and oh, I was going to say, I talked to, there's a, I forget his name now, there's a researcher at Wheaton College, or a professor at Wheaton College, who is, he is in the process of writing a book on psychedelics and more, like, um, the therapeutic aspects of them and more, like, neuroscientifically what is going on and what that could mean as far as Christian theology, and, um, he said, you know, like we're assuming that, you know, someone has a problem such as PTSD, chronic depression, what have you. And we're assuming that we're just going to blow it wide open and that things are going to come back together the way that they should. And he said, but a lot of times, you know, with psychedelics, like, and I don't think he has personal experience with psychedelics, but, but certainly has read a lot of research, you know, like you knows a lot about them. He said, yeah, we're assuming things are going to come back together as they should. But a lot of times things come back together, you know, wrong. And that was that was certainly my experience. I feel like it took years of of healing through Christian community, um, through the spirit of Christ and knowing Jesus Christ more deeply um, for me to... And there are still things now. I mean, I still have um, mental health issues from time to time. And did the all my drug use make it worse? I, I can't say for sure. Um, but sometimes I wonder, and so it, it just intrigues, and a lot of times people will say, you know, acid, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm getting off track as far as like actually addressing your theory. And like I said, it it was wonderful and I completely agree with that. But the term acid casualty, like that's not just folklore. Like there are those people, I mean, there are famous people, Sid Barrett, Rocky Erickson, there are, there are famous people for whom psychedelics permanently alter them in a way that made them essentially like incompatible with with functioning society and um, people will say like oh well in that in those cases psychedelics triggered a latent condition well you can't know that for sure and also we're proposing to use psychedelics to treat psychiatric conditions so like how you know how do those two things sync up like how do those two things make sense and um and absolutely, I, and I'll say too, like, like I said, I'm not nearly as well versed in theology as you, but, but I will just say, from my own experience, and this is the only word I can, I guess this is the best word I can think of to describe the difference. Like, my experiences in Christian community and and experiencing the spirit of Christ and growing in grace and the knowledge of Christ have been clean in a way that the mountaintop experiences on psychedelics were never were. And I feel like clean is kind of an odd word to use, but there's 
like a purity to them that I can now recognize the psychedelic experiences were just a mimicry of. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. I just feel like, you know, these are places we were never meant to go. And also as far as the the ego death that many people experience and that I felt that I myself experienced it. Well, for me, it would often result in I felt like I was so fractured, like I felt like instead of reconstituting in a way that made me a better person, ultimately I felt extremely fractured. And I I think, you know, the deeper you go into psychedelic culture, like psychedelics often tend to have, you know, what would seem this counterintuitive effect, like people can experience all these ego deaths, but then you have your Timothy Learys and a lot of them, you know, the self-appointed high priest and people for whom these repeated ego deaths seem to have inflated their ego to the point where they feel that they're a messiah figure. And I had I had a friend who, actually the one who invited me to the ayahuasca circle, she ended up going and had a really negative experience because the leader of the circle was that kind of like magisterial personality, you know, megalomaniac personality type. And I don't know if you've listened to any of the Power Trip podcasts. I think it's Mm-mm. called Cover Story, Power Trip. Okay. Um, it has, and there again, I don't want to like um, recommend it without qualifications because I have children and I can't, it's hard for me to find time to listen to it because there's a lot of cursing. But um, just these ser- these stories of abuses of power in the psychedelic world and like really harrowing and upsetting. And there are stories from the MAPS trials that are are just really upsetting and and I I don't feel like those stories are exceptional sadly like I feel like that's kind of characteristic of the psychedelic world and I mean you know when I was on unbelievable my my debating partner got really upset when I brought this up but Charlie Manson loved LSD he loved it they took LSD like every single day so I mean it's not as though you're reliably getting this transcendent, you know, experience of the presence of God and the unity of everything. Like that's not, that's not reliably the conclusion that people are coming to. And, um, so yeah, that was a lot of rambling. In conclusion, I, I think you are really, really onto something. That's that's beautiful, Ashley. Cause that's, I even just posted last night on my, my Twitter account. And I think my Instagram stories, um, article that vice just put out about a guy who essentially kind of moved into claiming himself to be like a DMT messiah figure. Um, and these stories, you know, I think that's the interesting part um, that, that deserves more reflection. And this is why I'm cautious about it. I'm not closing the door. Um, I, I, I know that there are potential for some therapeutic benefit in the right clinical setting. We can talk about that. But the thing I've been concerned about, and I just say we need to cautiously engage the subject is once you come out of these experiences, so you're left, you know, you go on this like DIY, do it yourself spirituality trip and you go, I've encountered something. I've I've experienced a state of self-transcendence. I've moved beyond the self. There's powers beyond me. Okay. Now what? Now I got to like organize myself into a community. And I have to develop like an ethical code and ethical norms. And now I have to pass down these norms and these stories to children, right? And 
And then we have to figure out like, all right, when we gather together in community, what's going to be our rituals and practices and what's going to be the story? And I, I just go like, we need to pump the brakes here, especially for those that I know have had terrible church experiences, awful church experiences. I've had awful, like terrible church experiences. It's the only the grace of God that I'm still like in the church and serving and leading in some way because I've seen horrible, horrible stuff. So I never am upset with anybody that's gone through that stuff. And like, I'm done with it. The thing I would say, and it's so interesting to hear your experiences about this is like, so people will leave that and they go, I'm still so hungry. I need, I can't live with just imminence alone. I have to have, we're made for transcendence. And so like they take the, 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 the rocket ship into the stratosphere of the spiritual principalities, powers, maybe even encountering a glimpse of God, but yet you have to come down from the mountain. And now when you come down from the mountain, like, how are you going to live in the world? Um, how are you going to organize yourself into a community that has a story and ethical norms? Um, that, that for me is like the, the question that I have. And I, I, I just think, all right, maybe what we have in church, in historic, traditional religious communities, have been like we've got millennia of people working through this stuff. So what I'd, I'd love to do, Ashley, is uh, I'd like to spend. We've spent a lot of time on you know your journey and your experiences with psychedelics, and what I'd like to do is have you share a bit, a bit more about. And you've talked about it a little bit, and give us a little bit of some glimpses, but. You've said you're never doing psychedelics again, and you went through a religious experience that brought you out of that. And part of your story, and I'd love to have you share um, a bit about that journey, is you came out of that, found yourself in a more holistic, healthy spirituality plugged into the Christian story and Christian community. How did that come about? And maybe share a little bit about... I love how you put, you had this like m maybe manic vision of God from psychedelics and in the person of Christ, yeah. you got precision and something clarity. Yeah. And I thought that was beautiful. Um, so share a little bit about how you got in or out of, you know, just being in the, the new age psychedelic circles and the countercultural circles into Christian community and a Christian story. Yeah, sure. So, um, I, so my husband actually was the first one and I was, I was also super in, in addition to psychedelics, I was very into yoga. I kind of view that as my religion insofar as I had a religion. And, and also, like you said about the DIY religion, I kind of felt like we did that for a long time, just kind of cobbling together, you know, sources from whatever, but there was within that, there was no reliable, um, sense of community, I mean, I, you know, I had the people I practiced yoga with, but, but as far as like, um, you know, people I would call on if there was a crisis or people I would, you know, people to rejoice with me when I was rejoicing and mourn with me when I was mourning, like I didn't, I didn't have that. And I, that certainly was very sorely felt after the birth of our first child, the, the absence of that, you know, we had all our old friends at that time who were still going to festivals and taking drugs and smoking weed all the time. And, um, we just quickly realized like, this just doesn't, 
this just doesn't fit anymore. And, um, but then we were just kind of, just kind of adrift. And it was after the birth of our second child, our daughter, that, um, and that was also, well, an aspect, there were just many pieces, you know, along the way, but, um, I think the, the two things that were going along at the same time was my, I think first came my disillusionment with psychedelics and also various aspects of new age culture. And, um, when I was pregnant with my daughter, I was involved. I went to this retreat, this women's retreat, this group of women led by a midwife who were very, very into natural childbirth. And, um, I was also very into that, but there was this sense of like, your worth is wrapped up in this. Like if you can't do this, then you fail as a woman. (laughs) And um, it's actually a really weird, like hazing type ritual that they did at this retreat that um, it's just really weird. And now I look back and I'm like, that was abusive. Um, But, you know, at the time I totally like bought into that wholesale. Like I have to do this. Like I have to. And so I did. We had a home birth in a tub and, you know, typical, very typical hippie birth. um, And she... Um, or sorry, what was I saying? Which I don't, I don't want to say like some women love that experience and they think it's wonderful. And, but for me, I did not feel empowered by it. I didn't feel like I was a warrior woman. Like I just felt defeated. Like I felt like I survived it. And I also was really into, um, you know, you can find different hippie literature about how giving birth is like tripping. Giving birth is a psychedelic experience. And I was just like, that was just horrifically painful. Like that, there was nothing, I mean, yes, there's something extremely wonderful at the end of it, but I just didn't, I didn't experience the process itself as blissful or even really transformative in a positive way. Like I just felt like I I don't think my wife would describe her labors as blissful and uh, euphoric. (laughs) Yeah, I think most women wouldn't. Um, But and so that was kind of a piece of my my disillusionment. I was like, okay, well, that didn't work. You know, that wasn't what I thought it was going to be. That that wasn't um, like I can't, you know, and I think I had a chip on my shoulder about it, too. Like, oh, I'm going to be able to brag about this. This is a thing I'm going to have that adds to my, you know, like natural crunchy mother hippie cred. And but I didn't feel like bragging about it at all because I was just like uh, yeah um but my husband so maybe several months after our daughter was born my husband he was very interested he just liked to read um various things from different world religions and I did too to an extent but he was more um thorough I guess and investigative about it and he started reading the desert fathers and started reading some Uh, Eastern Orthodox Christianity text and he was also seeing a therapist at the time and this therapist told him um challenged him I guess to quit smoking weed every day and to go to church and so he accepted that challenge and he he um and the therapist also recommended a certain church that was just within a few blocks of where we lived in Kansas City and so he said, I'm, I'm going to try this. I'm going to, and I remember I was just so, I mean, on one hand I was, I was spirit, so like spiritually bereft and at a point of desperation, but I also just like could not, like the idea of surrendering to Christianity of all things, you know, was just like so repugnant to me and I just couldn't bring myself. And 
I remember there was one night when it kind of came to a head and he said, like, I don't know if I believe in Jesus. I, you know, I don't know if I believe any of this, but I feel compelled to pursue it and I'm going to do it. And I started crying. I cried and I said, please don't leave me, leave me behind. And he said, well, come with me. And I was just like, I can't. (laughs) And, and, but eventually, oh, I'm sorry. This was actually when I was pregnant with our daughter. I, cause I remember I was like hugely pregnant, like eight months pregnant. And I finally went with him to church. And I remember we sat near the back, probably because I demanded it. And I just started weeping during the worship thing, you know, and part of me was like, okay, I'm pregnant, you know, I'm emotional, whatever. But I just felt, I felt relief. Like I felt like I don't, you know, and just all the things happening around this time, I felt like like I don't have to assail my brain with chemicals all the time in order to reach this enlightenment that I was no longer even sure existed, you know. And I remember too at that at that church, Jacob's Well, it's a wonderful church, but uh, we still visit when we go back to Kansas City. But at the end, everyone joins hands and they sing this song. Uh, it says, my friends, may you grow in grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And it goes on for a few verses and I just remember being like, oh my gosh, like just like so horrified. Like, what is with these people? You know, it was just like so foreign to like everything that I thought, you know, I thought, I mean, to me, like experiences of God were very individualistic. I mean, they were in as much as I would have given lip service to how you can experience God or experience the transcendent or the divine in other ways. I was very committed to psychedelics is pretty much the only way that you can do that. And, you know, yoga and meditation were kind of like ancillary to that, but they weren't the main pathway. And, um, but that was kind of the beginning of my very slow, sometimes begrudging, sometimes very, willing with like that sense of profound relief surrender to knowing Jesus Christ and like you said um like the precision in it but also and my conception of God before I would have said that I believed in God but my conception of God was kind of like this brutalizing force that would like pulverize your ego until you were reduced to ashes and only then could you kind of merge with part of the all and it's interesting, too, in the process of reading this book, I, there's this kind of obscure science fiction author, author named Ari Lafferty, who I was super into when I was, I discovered his book like the day after I took acid for the first time. And he has this, this brilliant short story called Old Foot Forgot. And there's a, this doctor in another planet, who knows where it is. And he treats these aliens in this clinic and one comes in and he's, he's, he's called a spherikoi and they, sorry, this is a lot of background to go into, but there's a point, um, like it, it shoots out these pseudopods, like new pseudopods every time. And then they just absorb. And so anyway, it's just kind of this analogy for like the all and that there are these, um, like entities or s- separate individual creatures that exist for a time and then they're absorbed back into the all and the doctor also lives in this culture where that's the prevailing theological belief that in like everything is about the uh ephemeral nature uh, like he destroy he burns down his dwelling every seven every seven days and anyway in the story 
however it's going to occur, he is coming to the end of his life and everyone's trying to encourage him like, this is so wonderful and blissful, like you're going to be absorbed back into the all and into the nothingness, you know, and the oblivion that... Uh, that is everything. And he, he's like, increasingly he's fighting against it. He's like, no, like I want to exist as me. Like I want, and it's so fascinating. Like at the end, someone tells him, and I, I don't know if Ari Lafferty meant this to be a Christ figure, but like someone tells him like, oh, there's a person who can help you. This alien named Torchy 12, like it said, it's a science fiction story. But, and at the end he's like, in desperation, he's like running up this hill toward Torchy 12's hut, you know, like trying to find, I think he calls it like the solution that makes everything okay forever. And I bring this up because it was really fascinating about it and that I totally went over my head at the time. The nurse, there's a nurse and a lay priest in the story that are called, it's like lay priest, Migma P.T. C. And I was like, oh, that's just so weird. You know, like Ari Lefty uses all kinds of weird names. I did not know. I just found out recently that the story is actually a refutation of Pierre Telehard de Chardin. De Chardin? Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Of yeah. his of his theology, which was kind of, and I haven't read that much of it. I think my husband has a couple of his books. It was like a very, like, and correct me if I'm wrong. You probably know more. Like he was kind of like a Christian pantheist. Like, it was more of that idea. And so Ari Lafferty was a devout Catholic, and he was, like, the whole story was a refutation. And I just found that so wow. fascinating. Like, oh, I took it I took it as, I took it completely the opposite way. And so, I don't know, it was just this interesting, like, full circle thing to realize, like, oh, this story I revered so much, and I, I took it as this analogy for, like, I need to learn how to pulverize my ego and, like, be absorbed into the all. And he was actually arguing against that belief they system. So it. <laughs> I totally missed it over my head. And I just kind of got chills when I, you know, I just, I don't know. It's just, it's just fascinating. So, um, but yeah, my, my conception of God was very like impersonal, like God is this life force. And it was fascinating too, because I had such an arrogance about Christianity and Christians. Like I felt like they're on a lower plane, you know, and I'm up here because I've done all these psychedelics and I, and it was just so like profoundly humbling and beautifully humbling to learn like, oh, all these people that I viewed as, as lesser and like they're, you know, following this really simplistic, like crutch, like, you know, paternalizing religion. And it turns out like, oh, they had, they had the key the whole time. And like, just realizing that I am, uh, I was reading, there's Frederick Buechner is one of my favorite Christian creative writers, I guess you say. And I was rereading one of his sermons the other night and he was talking about seeing a, like, um, in LA or something like seeing on a high wall up in the hills, like someone has, had painted Jesus saves. And he said, there's part, you know, there's like part of us that like, winces a little when we see that because it's just like so starkly personal you know even like Christ saves would be a little more comfortable because it has like a theological intellectual air to it but just Jesus saves and but it's like that that deeply intimate personal (laughs) dimension you know of who Jesus is and who he is to us that was like such a such a profound relief and refuge for me after so many years of feeling like God is this abstract concept um, 
yeah, that, that's almost like, it was almost like, um, brutal in a way. And I have to repeatedly subject myself to this process. And, and, and I very much had like a works based, you know, religion of like, it is up to me to like reach this omega point of enlightenment. Um, so, so yeah. I think that's probably our default mode. Right? Yeah. That seems to be yeah. the default mode of humans in their religious journeys. And you see it throughout yeah. paganism too. And I just think that's like one of the things I found fascinating too is, um, you know, you see some of these, especially like ancient Mesoamerican cultures that had access to ayahuasca and they're, mm. you know, ayahuasca is part of the religious rituals and yet so is human sacrifice. And you go, right. Yeah. Like, did, did that produce in this enlightenment that mm. led to the flourishing of the least of these? Right. No, it didn't. Yeah. And you've just described like his like historic Christian eschatology in this beautiful way. That's there's this tension here, where there certainly is um, a dying of ourselves as we carry the mm. cross, but we don't get like just absorbed into the Borg, you right. know. Yeah. And like yeah. lose our individuality into the collective. And it's not, I've learned a lot from Neoplatonism, and, but it's not Neoplatonism where in the end, the goal is to essentially be absorbed into the one and you, you lose all mm -hmm. distinction of self. Now, like yeah. the Christian story is we get raised to life, like resurrected yeah. bodies in a redeemed yeah. and restored creation where we do have union with God. And it's, like ecstatic it's the beatific vision it is beyond yeah. all trips it is it's communion yes. and yet yes. you're with others and i think the other interesting thing is you you have this distinction and yet what local christian community looks like does require a sort of death to the self or at least a death to narcissism because yeah. honestly, Ashley, as I, I mean, I think of like, <laughs> I've been reflecting on like, even in our own small little local church, like, what are we doing here? <laughs> and one of the things I just keep coming back to is, this is really a gathering of like, generally low status people on the social ladder, mm -hmm. who are doing yeah. something together constantly giving of themselves for the benefit of others, for the flourishing of others, for the well-being of others with very little notoriety. And yeah. yet this like quaint little life is meaningful and beautiful and it's yes. endowed with so much meaning, but it's not, it, there is, I love like you sharing, I, I'm taken aback even at my own like elitism that I find myself in self-righteousness yeah. when I see those Jesus save signs like you're talking yeah. about. It just seems so, you know, it just it seems so unbecoming and again, low status, but that, you know, that, that's what I think like a healthy death of ego looks like is so that yeah. you become somebody and we see this in, in Jesus. Like, are you willing yeah. to wash the feet of people that should be beneath you? Yes. And, um, yeah, you once you get wrapped up in that community, that's way better than these charlatans out there that are yes. you know, self-professing Messiah figures and like, you know, and again, there's obviously yeah. dysfunctional, unhealthy churches, but. Sure. And it's so much more profoundly. Ahead, 
Oh yeah, sorry. It's so much more profoundly beautiful, you know, than than anything I experienced on acid, or you know, like I, it just floors me now to think like the experiences that I have had in Christian community, or even even the experiences of like watching my dad die, you know, and watching my next door neighbor die that was several years ago, like there's sorrow. And that, that's another thing I was thinking, like there's sorrow, but there's not darkness, you know, whereas the, these, these highly into, and that's an, with psychedelics, like it, it can, psychedelics very easily become a very insular thing. Like, you know, I have a, I have a friend who, um, was, when I first met him, he, he's a Christian, but he was kind of on the other side of the divide, um, for me. And like, very optimistic about the potential for psychedelics to be transformative, even within Christian communities. And he has now, um, and he was pretty deeply invested too in, in different organizations. And he is now completely is in the process of, and has completely vacated all those spaces and, and has become increasingly because he has become increasingly disillusioned with what he has seen in the psychedelic community. And, and, he emailed me the other day and he was talking about, you know, I, I feel like Christians are kind of naive in this space too. And they, they don't realize that the vast majority of psychedelic culture is not interested in Christianity whatsoever. And that's, that's absolutely true. And I think when you were talking, I, I was thinking of some of my favorite verses in the Bible are in first Corinthians one and two, and specifically God chose, um, Oh no, God chose the weak things of the world to shame, or God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise and the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And I never like, you know, I would have read that. That would have been foolishness to me. Even when I was taking psychedelics, that would have been foolishness to me. Like I remember there was one night, um, you know, I, I, in some ways I experienced that, like, you know, look back now, I see terrifying, like Timothy Leary, Charles Manson inflation of, of myself, I just didn't have the acolytes, you know, <laughs> to follow me. But, um, and I, I just never, I never could have like comprehended that outside of Jesus Christ. And, and there's just so much beauty in that, you know, and sometimes I look around at our church and I think like, you know, these people are not like the winners of society, you know, like oh, this is not. You've got to get used to that, right? If yeah, you're going to a yeah. church to hang out with a bunch of the winners of society, you're in the wrong place. And I mean that yeah. with so much like, like honesty and sincerity and highlighting yeah. that as beautiful. I, it's not unbecoming yes. to me. Yes. Yeah. And it is, it's absolutely beautiful. And I, and I am among them. I am not one of the winners that, you know, like I count myself among that. And, and, um, yeah, I just remember, and I, when we, we were still relatively new Christians and, and we moved to Southeastern Colorado for a time and our neighbor who I absolutely love, we're going back to visit, she's in her eighties. And, and, um, I have learned so much from her about Jesus and she's just a wonderful, wonderful woman, but she invited me to this Bible study that was like all old ladies. I was the only young woman in it, you know, and there was part of me that was like, really, you know, like I, I you know, like, like that elitist thing of like, you know, this isn't my place. Like this isn't, I'm not, you know, and it was like, it was so profound and so beautiful. And like, yeah, I just, it, it's, it's, I, I have found treasures in Christian community and, in 
living relation relationally through Jesus Christ that like I said, uh, psychedelics could only be a faint mimicry of those things, you know. Yeah. Beautiful. Well said, Ashley. Well, yeah. I'm very much open. Um, those that are listening, you know, I, I really do mean this. Like, I, I'm not just trying to have these guests on and talk with people like Ashley to just be like, I've got an axe to grind and I know <laughs> my perspective on this is right. If you have different experiences, I'd... I'd love, I'd love to hear from you. I mean, I don't want to speak on your behalf. Maybe even Ashley would love to, to, to hear from you. I'm sure sure. (laughs) as well as she's writing. Um, but Ashley, this has been tremendously informative. I love hearing your story. Um, you know, we can read like data about people and, uh, you know, Johns Hopkins university studies on people that have done this, but there's, there's, there's no comparing that to a story and to the story yes. of someone's life. And this is, this has yeah. been really beautiful to hear. Thank you for sharing it with me. And I'm, I'm so grateful. I'm so happy that you're, you're getting to write more about it. Um, again, maybe could you tell people listening when maybe they can expect this, this uh, book of yours to, to come out? I don't know if there's even been a title yet or not, but when, when can people be looking yeah. forward to that? Um, so as far as publication date, I don't know. I know I'm turning in my manuscript before and then I'm having a baby. (laughs) So, um, but yeah, the working title is outside the gates of Eden, which is actually from a Bob Dylan song. So hopefully that'll be allowed as far as copyright goes. I mean, it's a, I feel like it's a, the phrase itself is not necessarily, you know, specific enough. Um, right, right, right. So, um, so yeah, I'm hoping maybe in 2023 or early 2024, I would hope would be the publication date. Awesome. Today's video and podcast wouldn't be possible without the generous support of listeners and viewers just like you over on Patreon. I want to give an extra special thanks to Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, David, Eli, Elise, Jesse, John Mark, John Michael, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke H, Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Mike Thomas, Paul Spencer, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P, Sarah R, Taylor S. Thank you all for your generous support.